This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Morena no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the catch-up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo irarangi una tangata o Manawatu. It is a Thursday morning, and that means we turn our attention to local government. And this week it's Palmerston North City Council. And on the line this morning we have Rachel Bowen, City Councillor. Good morning to you. Morena Fraser. Um, now, yesterday, I think, was a pretty full-on day for council, <laughs> uh, possibly putting it mildly. I'll leave that for individuals to judge. Uh, a couple of things caught the headlines, though, that we should maybe um, we'll, we'll look at later. But first off, one of your portfolios is the arts side of things in the city, Someone, uh, something that you are very much an advocate for. Uh, and I guess you want to talk possibly about the resilience of the arts sector because not only has it, it, it done it tough the past, well, two plus years, mm-hmm. um, but also a very close ally of the arts uh, community in Café Royale has had to close uh-huh. its doors, which culminates yeah. things, doesn't it? Oh, just absolutely heartbreaking for the individuals involved. Um, I mean, yeah, as you said, a hard two years. You know, two years ago, I'd been over in the UK for a family wedding and I flew back in. Um, on a wave of COVID, I think. Um, and I remember coming back and saying to um, our arts community and Act 3 in particular, we need to prepare for people not to be going to theatre. And goodness, you, uh, the, the vitriol that came my way. So you can't say that. You're supposed to be an advocate for the community. Um, but, you know, you could see the writing on the wall coming back, and I certainly could. But even even in that, I could not have anticipated the two years that we've had. And this year, I have to say, this summer season has felt worse. Maybe our resilience, maybe my resilience is lower. I've been beaten down by two years of COVID, but um, it's felt worse. And um, our art sector has taken it on the chin all the way through. Um, There's been support for the art sector, which I'm sure um, they're very grateful for. And I know, you know, I've been personally very grateful to see government support and council support. So grateful to colleagues for coming in behind that. But gosh, it's been a hard couple of years. So I was really pleased to see when council put out its most recent creative communities funding round that we've had a good number of applications and people are thinking about you know, how projects can go ahead, even if they're COVID impacted, which has been you know, a long journey of people getting their heads around doing things differently. Because I, I rather think that the lessons we've been forced to learn will have to stay with us for a long time. It is it is quite interesting because I remember as we came out of the first lockdown and we were trying to get things back up and running, there were some, yeah. some would say innovative ideas. I would say uh, counter to the, 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 the meaning behind the legislation. But, for example, the Regent Theatre carving itself up into three venues in the hope that it could keep things going. Mm. Um, th- 
the innovation was there, maybe ill-placed, maybe not. Again, that's up to people's opinions. But as oh, I mean, hindsight's a terrible thing, is it? At the time, that innovation, and they, they made four venues out of the region, that innovation was, um, it, it kept a show on that would have otherwise failed. But at the time that we're dealing with COVID in the first iteration, which you'll remember we were all very concerned about touch contact in COVID. So four venues that actually shared airspace worked in COVID where it wouldn't work in Delta and it wouldn't work in Omicron, which are much more respiratory you know, mm. transmission. But so as, we I, had to respond. Yes, and, and as we've progressed, as you've said, there's been that sort of beaten down mentality, but it, that, yeah. in, that innovation, it appears, is starting to come back now. Yeah, I think so. And I think for the art sector, what's been quite encouraging is we've had a good look at uh, what what's good looks like, I suppose, to frame it that way. Um, that first lockdown, every yeah, man and his performing dog went online um, to share their talent with the world for free. Um, and I'm, I'm not convinced that that was necessarily a good thing. A, I don't think um, our art sector should be expected to give away their art. And B, you lost some element of quality control that comes when people pay for tickets. Um, so yeah, all innovation is not good. Um, but our community—it's a creative community. We responded in creative ways, and we've learned through a process of innovating and testing. I suppose um, that good old design thinking approach that our creative sector is so good at—we've come to a place now where we've we've got some good learning, and the innovation that's sticking is because that's good and valuable. Mm. The, the, the do you think the art sector was unfairly treated during lockdown? I know that a, a number of venue operators. I'm, I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning Jerry Keating Jerry. at the Globe Theatre, <laughs> amongst others. I'm not singling him out. Uh, saw some hypocrisy in how arts was dealt with when you compared it to things like sport. Did you see any hypocrisy there? I don't know if I would frame it as hypocrisy. Um, and I, will, and I definitely would put that in the context of all these decisions were incredibly difficult to make. But, yeah, absolutely, um, it didn't always feel that we were being given a fair a fair go in the arts sector. You know, I trust, and I, yeah, I've written about this month after month in the Manawatu Guardian, I trust our arts venues to deliver safe events. Um, they've got a stellar track record of doing just that. We're very blessed in Palmerston North with small venues um, where we can work with the government, smaller numbers. Um, and and we've, we've done really well with it. And But yes, I mean, there's been a lot of frustration and I hear it. I'm just, there's, there's sometimes a place for venting our frustration and we've needed those spaces. And there's also a space for just getting on with it as best we can. And our venues have done brilliantly in the just getting on with it space. And hopefully we can see them uh, doing some innovative and, and new works as we move forward and get those theatres and galleries full again and hopefully see a new tenant in Square Edge where Café Royale oh, used to be. Absolutely. And if anybody's listening who wants to start a cafe, have I got the deal for you? <laughs> I, th- I, I think at this point the phrase, would you like to start a cafe, fills someone with absolute <laughs> terror. But our heart goes out to the people that are already doing it. Oh, I don't know. It might be a sensible career option for retiring councillors. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'll get to retiring councillors in, in, in a moment. But first, um, Palmerston North made a, a rare appearance in uh, central government uh, over the past few weeks as the 
submission to the Palmerston North Reserves Empowering Bill went ahead. This was an opportunity for the City Council to go to Wellington and uh, point at this unique bit of land that requires central government intervention in order to sort of rezone it in layman's terms to make it available for housing. And this has happened once or twice before, but the council wasn't really in a position to say that they had public opinion on their side. What seems to have been a little different this time is that the council went to Parliament saying there had been a change of appetite, certainly a change of need in terms of the housing crisis, and put forward a case to say that the land should be rezoned, which only means that the City Council is then empowered to look at how it's used. It's not, you know, going to Parliament saying, can we put houses on it? It's just, can we decide how it's used? What I found quite interesting, though, is that the perhaps vocal minority, who really knows, uh, of Palmerston North came uh, to Wellington, including including Brent Barrett, City Councillor Brent Barrett. Um, I think the headlines say he broke ranks uh, to say that he opposed, but he was not alone, um, which looks like a little bit of spanner in the the works. Ah, just process, I'd say, Fraser. You know, Huia Street is an unusual piece of land in that it was gifted to the city um, way back in the day, which means it's controlled by Parliament, not by Council. Now, normally, we can do whatever we like, with our reserves, but clearly we don't because public opinion is strongly that reserves are there to provide you know, green space, recreational space, quiet space in the city. Um, and normally I'd be 100% on board with that argument. But Huia Street, um, my perspective on that is that it's it's never been, well, it was a bowling club, it was never a, you know, a, a reserve playground-y green space as such. Um, it sits between a huge, huge amount of green space on that corner, you know, from the Esplanade to the river. Through, you know, we're not short of green space in that part of town, and we do have a well-documented housing crisis. Does everybody agree that we should put houses on that land? No, no, of course they don't, and that's never going to happen. And as you say, yeah, you know, we're not even saying that at this stage. We're just saying, please, can we have the right to control that land rather than it being controlled? through Parliament. And if they say yes, um, and they will say yes or not as a result of the process and the submissions that they hear, then we'll go back out to the community. And we've already expressed that we think housing is the way to go for that. But we've not talked about housing density or who owns the houses, if the land stays in public ownership, and we look at other models. Um, there's a a long way to go before anything is built on Huia Street, even if Parliament agrees. What would you say to the people that have submitted to central... Actually, let me phrase this another way. Has there ever Mm -hmm. been submissions in your tenure to the City Council lamenting the state over the the overgrown uh, retired bowling club on Huia Street? Um... The expedient answer to that would be no, but that wouldn't be quite true because I know it has been mentioned kind of as an aside when we've been talking about the railway land. Um, because there's a, um, a small but vocal community of interest around the railway land and keeping that as um, open and unutilised space. Um, and some of the same people are involved in Huia Street and yeah, they... So they, it has been mentioned. It wouldn't be fair to say that it hasn't been mentioned. But there's been no there's been no proactive 
proposals for what we could do with Huia Street, um, apart from the tennis club sometimes have cast their eye over it. Um, at one point, I know we talked to Girls High and said, would you be interested? And they said, yeah, we can't afford it. And the Ministry of Education wouldn't put any money into them extending that way. So, no, there's been, uh, there's been nothing particularly proactive in that space, as far as I can remember. But my memory you should not be trusted early in the morning. Fair enough. But I, I just, I wonder if there is opportunity to at least showcase the idea that an overgrown bowling club is providing zero value to the city, whereas any other proposal would have been a, a better one. And yet when the council comes up with an idea, there are no counter proposals. It's just, no, we need reserve land when it is not acting as reserve land right now. Oh, there were some counter-proposals in the submissions. When we went out for submissions to say we'd have to go to Parliament and were people okay with that, there were some alternative proposals for things like uh, community gardens, um, just making it green space, having a cultural centre, which we've been talking about with Fangatane. Um, so there were some proposals that came through in the in the initial submissions. Um, but, but Council had gone out with the proposal that we would release this land with a view to putting housing on it. And so, that, yeah, that's that's kind of the proposal we're going to Parliament with. And when do we expect to hear from Parliament whether they will empower Palmerston North to uh, use this land as it sees fit, with appropriate, I assume, public consultation? I can't answer that question. I don't have a date for that. Fair enough. Well, we'll keep watching with interest. Um, sadly, people weren't watching the city hammocks with interest, were they? Oh, no, my hammocks. Oh, I'm heartbroken. So it's like coming hard on the heels of the Buzzy Bee scandal. <laughs> now we have the hammocks. So remind us where the hammocks were and how long they've been there. Well, they were the Albert Street entrance to um, the river. So, and they hadn't been there very long. I'm going to go a couple of months. They, they, were, they lived in the square for a little bit of time while, while we sort of showcased them to the community and then decided where they were going to go. So this was um, a structure, a metal structure that had looked a bit like a spider's web, I suppose, and it had four or five hammocks slung in it. Um, yeah, went down to Albert Street, and then we received notification earlier this week that the hammocks had been stolen. So now, if you were to uh, make some assumptions, would this be a disgruntled local resident that doesn't like it or uh, vandalism or an opportunist that wants something for their own garden? Well, possibly all of the above. I don't, I can't even begin, I actually cannot begin to imagine who in our community would look at a community asset and go, you know what, I'm going to take that away. I just cannot fathom that, Fraser, and that might be a failure of imagination on my part, which it, I'm not known for. It, it, it's I, a little, I, it's a little naive. To there's always someone that's thinking something that you think is ridiculous. I know, but I, I try really hard to believe the best of people. So, well, maybe then it was an out of towner. Yeah, it could have been. Could have been somebody just wandering down the river thought, "I'll be having those hammocks." Yes. Uh, so are we going to be replacing them or is, is it a fool's errand to replace them in the knowledge that they'd likely disappear again? Um, I've not heard officially, but I'd imagine we would try to replace them. That's generally what we do. We, yeah. Again, we'll continue to believe the best of people and go, that was just an aberration. Mm.
We are here with Councillor Rachel Bowen from Palmerston North City Council, finding out what's been making the the, the headlines and the, the council meeting agendas uh, over the past couple of weeks. Um, mm. And certainly something that's made headlines, I saw it on uh, the Manor 2 Standard website yesterday, um, the council are bracing themselves as they consult the community <laughs> on what they think of an 8.3% rates increase. Do you really need to be told... Well, we always need to be told because that's the point of consultation. Um, I was laughing at bracing, bracing myself because this is what we do every year. You know, we get, we go out with a number and people come back and tell us what they think about it. Um, what's, what's the issue? I don't think, yeah, I will rephrase that. I was about to say, I don't think the 8.3% is an issue. That'd be a stupid thing to say. Of course, that's an issue. Um, but that is very much a, along the lines of what we signaled in the 10-year plan. What is causing the issue and what will agitate a lot of people is the impact on their rates has, of, the, of a rate increase has changed because of the revaluation, which you know regular listeners will know um, is a revaluation is what we're required to do under the Local Government Act to assess how the rates burden is borne. And anybody who lives in Palmerston North, in residential Palmerston North, will know that land values have gone through the roof. But what you might not be aware of is that residential land values have gone through the roof. Commercial land values have not. They have stayed the same. So what that means is the proportion of rates that are borne by residential will increase rather than on commercial. And that's what's causing the problem. So yeah, when we talk about an 8.3% rates increase, that's, that's an average rate payer figure. Um, None of us like to think of ourselves as average. I certainly don't. Um, and if you are on a property that has a large land uh, a land value that has increased significantly in value over the last three years, then you will be in line for a greater than expected rates increase. And um, what, it's not that we've changed the percentage; it's that the land value has changed. And what do what to what extent did the city council consider? Because you have an opportunity, of course, to revisit this figure under extenuating circumstances. To what extent did the council factor in the current narrative of a cost of living crisis? Um, it's been very much front of mind in discussions, and I would hate anyone to think that we make these decisions lightly. We absolutely don't. Um, there's robust debate about things that are in the annual budget and things that aren't. And we've moved hugely, actually. And it always looks like we just put things in. But in in the process of coming to our annual budget or the 10-year plan, um, we probably well, there's a lot more goes out than goes in, let's just say that. And the things that are in are heavily debated so often it's things like you know, a roading program might get pulled forward. Well, you say you could just not do that. But if we don't do it, then what that means for future years is increased short-term maintenance cost and a bigger bill when you eventually do the proper job. So we're all always trying to balance short-term, I hesitate to say political expediency, but I'm going to. This is an election year and there is quite a lot of electioneering goes on around these kind of issues. Um, short-term political expediency with the long-term needs of the city, balancing that with the, the ability to pay and our deep concern for the vulnerable in our community. But again, the vulnerable in our community get 
um, a lot of support and value from the services that council provides and would be disproportionately affected if we start to withdraw those services. So it's, it's a huge balancing act that comes down to a very binary yes or no on an 8.3% rates increase. It would be nice to have brought it down maybe to seven point something, though, to to at least demonstrate some sort of reaction to what not even our most vulnerable uh, in our in our society anymore, our, our middle income, you know, yeah. two income families are starting to feel the pinch now yeah. with petrol prices going up and, and food prices going up and rents, good Lord, rents and interest rates. Was there Could not, not agree more? So, and we were hopeful of getting there because there is some funding that um, has been signalled by government that will come to councils. It's called the the Better Off Funding, which is part of the Three Waters, which is a very complicated thing. But anyway, there is money that will come to councils, and it can come into this annual budget. But at the time of the debate, we hadn't got enough information from government to be able to allocate it against programmes. So that is signalled in the discussion document, the consultation document, and I would expect that by the time we've heard submissions and come to debate the annual budget, that we will know what programmes we can use government money for and we'll be able to use that to mitigate the rates rise. That is my expectation. That, you say, though, is tied into Three Waters, which uh, Mayor Helen Borboys would tell us is not a done deal yet. The better off funding is a done deal. Fair enough. So there are some elements, some, some elements that are baked in already. Yeah, I would not argue with Mayor Helen. Goodness me, no. <laughs> um, and she's absolutely right. The legislation has not yet been put before the House. Um, but there is funding that has already been agreed for councils as, as part of their working through the Three Waters process. Um, and we hope to be able to use that going out for consultation. It was you know, very much the view of elected members that we wanted to put uh, full and transparent information in front of um, our community. And our intention was to, to do that, including the better off funding. We couldn't do that in the end because we didn't have enough money from government, but that is signalled in the consultation document. We are here with Councillor Rachel Bowen coming near to the end of the catch-up here on Manawa Two People's Radio. If you'd like to listen to this or previous editions of the catch-up series, head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your online listening. Um, with about five minutes to go, Rachel, uh, are you going to be standing for election again this year? Oh, there's a question. I have not yet made that decision, Fraser. Ooh. So, I, yes, I know. Breaking news, folks. Rachel has not made a decision. <laughs> um, you, we, it all starts come July. Um, I'm taking some time to reflect and uh, consider. But nevertheless, you are uh, maybe not actively campaigning, but when you get a chance, you are encouraging people to consider standing for election and getting some new blood around oh, God, the table. Yes. Um, remind Absolutely. us, r- remind us um, the current setup, 15 councillors, one mayor, but this year we are bringing in Molly Ward. So what is the makeup yeah. going to be moving forward? Um, so from October, we will have one mayor, two Mardi councillors elected from the Mardi Ward and 13 councillors elected at large from the General Ward. The Baker's Dozen. <laughs> yes, and I am, I am actively looking for people to stand. Um, 
because you get the, you get the government you deserve. That's the old saying. Um, but you can only vote for the, who's on the ballot paper. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'd love to see a really strong ballot paper giving our community really good choices that enables each of us to see somebody who represents us in some way. Yeah, whether that's about gender or ethnicity or age or you know, financial status or however you want to see yourself re- reflected on council, the more people who stand, the more chance we have of seeing ourselves reflected. Um, and I'd love to be part of encouraging that. And so, yeah, absolutely. I'm very, very much making myself available to help with that. And of course, the more people that stand, the more people I have to interview at election time. And I think you relish seeing me absolutely knackered when I'm down to my thirtieth <laughs> councillor. Um, no, but you must value that a diversity of views. It'd be very dull for you if we all, yeah, fifteen of us turned up and we all said the same thing. That'd be very dull indeed. Indeed. Um, so, I mean, give people a bit of an indication. I mean, you've been doing this for a while. Three terms. <laughs> Yes, this is the end of my third term, and, hence the reflection. Yes, and, and you know, you are someone who has, I think, sort of swung between almost treating it like a full-time job and then balancing it with other commitments, work or family or yeah. otherwise. Um, how easy is it to do that? What is the, the sort of the commitment that people need to be thinking about going into this? Yeah, that is, that is the most difficult thing because there's no average week on council. Um, you know, it's definitely, definitely somewhere between 15 and 25 hours a week or five and 25 hours a week. Yeah, you know, some weeks we don't have anything because we're on, yeah, you know, we have breaks in January and July. Um, there's, there's nothing regular is the difficult thing apart from Wednesdays. We generally have some meetings um, and that is what makes it incredibly difficult to balance a normal job with council. And that's why you don't see that very much around the table. Um, you see people who run businesses, who are retired, who make council their full-time work or their part-time work, and they maybe do some voluntary stuff as well. Um, you don't often see people who who work, and there are very good reasons for that. It's been it's it's a difficult juggling act for sure. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it's incredibly rewarding and. Um, as much time as goes into it in the day goes into it in the evening in community activities. You know, there are two parts to the role. It's being an elected representative as well as being governance. And those two things need to be balanced. And and the fact that it is tough to balance it with a job or even balance it with family life is going to limit the amount of people that would add diversity to the table. Especially when we're yeah. a cost of living crisis. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not... It's not a, if it's your full-time gig, it's not a high-paying full-time gig. Um, that's not, I don't think any of us get into it for the money, to be honest. Um, but there are other rewards to it. Very good. Uh, Councillor Rachel Bowen uh, <laughs> from Palmerston North City Council, thank you for joining us on the catch-up this morning. My absolute pleasure, Fraser. There we go, Councillor Rachel Bowen joining us for the catch-up here on Two People's Radio. Join us tomorrow at half past eight. We speak to MP for Rangitiki, Ian McKelvey, finding out what he's been up to for the past couple of weeks. Do join us then. In the meantime, bye for now. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz 
forward slash donate.